All right, go ahead. Welcome to all of the above. <laughs> you didn't reverb. All right, do it again. Okay, do it again. <laughs> Welcome to all of the above. Welcome to All of the Above, uh, a podcast where we couldn't decide what we wanted to talk about. We wanted to talk about a lot of different things and really just come on here and talk about whatever we wanted. So we said that we would talk about All of the Above. My name is Aaron Markham. I am one of the pastors at the Church of Greer Station, uh, soon to be, hopefully, possibly maybe Ridgewood Church. Lord willing, yep. Um, I am joined by my co-host today. Or color commentator Trevor Hoffman. Trevor, right. what's going on? Oh man, just drinking some very old Chick Fil A coffee, but that's okay because coffee is coffee at the end of the day. Mm, it sounds not good and terrible. Um, I don't like any coffee, <laughs> so I'm just impressed. I noticed, I happened to notice what you had open a second ago. You are cataloging all of your books. Yes, I, I've cataloged my books. My wife helped me get mostly all the way there, and just kind of creating a little library so that the evangelism evangelism books are with the evangelism books and the nice missions books are with the missions books and theology and you know that kind of thing so i yeah. appreciate my wife helping me get organized i see your books were in trevor's office right now they're in abc order by last name which is a great way to organize so you'll be able to find the book you need that's right until they get stolen. Um, yeah, till somebody takes Braden it. Braden Smith takes them and I also have them. a catalog so that there's a there's a borrowed mm. line, column so mm. that hopefully no one steals it and they come and ask me for it. Then I, I love put, it. put their name in the column. So this is our first podcast in the new space. Um, but as always, we're set up. You know, We hodgepodge together. We set it up in Trevor's office. I'm stacked on six books and a little side table to be able to talk. And, and I'm producing... Uh, so that means I can play with things like reverb. I, say something. Yeah, I have no idea how I sound right now. <laughs> you sound like you're in a cavern. Oh, gosh. Trevor's going to have me embarrassed by the end of this. But this is our first podcast in here. So one thing that we have learned about Trevor and myself as we've been trying to think through um, a building is that Trevor loves design mm. and decor and how things feel and look. I, I It's not that I don't care or could care less but if it's just white and functional that that's fine with me so trevor my question to you uh, is what is your favorite color and mm. why favorite color uh just anything but orange there's a place in my sh- heart for all colors except i should have seen that one coming yeah i should have seen that one coming i didn't see that one coming <laughs> i didn't see that one coming our last office was very dark um so i just thought you might choose a dark color um, but anything but orange, that does make sense. Yep. My wife has gotten me to where I just like airy, light colors. She yeah. has trained me up. Um, so uh, Space, I mean, we are embodied creatures, and we're not Gnostic. We don't believe that our internal and our external world are miles apart. They're very much influenced by one another. And space has a, has a powerful effect on us. And for me, I have found that the effect that I like and what helps me focus and be productive is to have a kind of moody or vibey space, as some have called it. So I like dim lighting. I like dark colors. I kind of like 
little background music, background noise that just helps me be productive. Sometimes be very loud noise. Some, well, it's to drown out. Sometimes I'm putting on my headphones, my noise-canceling headphones in the other office so that I cancel <laughs> out what Trevor's listening in, in on We're just going to battle, battle it out. Whoever's here first has to... I'll just put my I'll it. just put my headphones on. It's it's fine. I take it, and I'm hoping that as we do this podcast, I can read my Bible because the only light we have in here is a window that's ten feet across the room. So we're we're feeling nice and moody and vibey uh, in here right now. So today we wanted to talk about um, some some stuff we didn't get to cover in our first uh, sermon on, uh, Ephesians chapter one. We are in a series called so great a salvation where we're taking three weeks and talking about Ephesians one and the title. So great, a salvation comes from Hebrews, uh, chapter two, uh, verse three. And we are just seeking to celebrate what we have received being in Christ, the salvation that we have received and what that does and has done for us. But in Ephesians chapter one, there is language used around election or uh, chose or choose and predestination and, and Trevor you did not get to dive into that um, super in depth in our in our sermon so we wanted to kind of hit those two big categories election and and predestination and so I wanted to start off just reading our statement of faith uh, we have a statement of faith it's got I don't know 22 23 bullets um, on it number 10 is election. So the way we talk about election is this. Election is the gracious purpose of God by which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. Moreover, election is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness that is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. Even so, election is not inconsistent with the free agency of human beings, but serves to exclude boasting and to promote humility. And then from there, we have a a number of different... Uh, verses throughout um, a little bit in Genesis and then um, a good bit throughout the the New Testament. So Trevor, I would love to ask when you went through those first, I think you had seven or eight verses in our first sermon, why did you not go into uh, election and predestination at that point? Yeah, I mean, one of the hardest things, we talk about this all the time, Aaron and I do, one of the hardest things when you teach a passage is knowing what to leave out because any given scripture, there are endless amounts of uh, bits of, of information that you can chase. And um, it's all good, and it's all relevant. And so, I mean, a, a lot of what you have to do in sermon prep is just make a judgment call as to what is most essential to what the author is saying in a given passage. And I felt like, in working through it, that I could, I could use sort of high-level language like I did. Um, I, I talked about how God purposed from eternity past to, to do something, which I think conveys the same idea that in different terms that Paul's conveying here, um, and still kind of makes the main thing of the passage the main thing, that God's purpose in history was to glorify Jesus, and he's included us in that kind of graciously and amazingly. Um, and so I, I just felt like it was going to be, especially on Easter Sunday, because the text happened to be on Easter Sunday, that it would be, it just wouldn't be the most helpful thing to kind of do a deep dive on that, on, on, on these ideas there. You know, it might be different if we were doing a series on Ephesians, where we, where we were wanting to kind of go slow and extract as much as we could from, you know, any given verse, that we'd probably approach it a little bit differently. 
So it was a combination of just trying to keep the main thing, the main thing, stay kind of high level, and also recognize Easter Sunday is a Sunday where you have, you know, who knows who could be in attendance on Easter Sunday. And so, you know, not wanting to, um, I don't want to say get caught in the weeds because that has a negative connotation. Um, so I don't quite want to say that, but but also, you know, trying to trying to just be kind of as to the point and kind of keep the, the main idea, the focus there. That, that's the reason I left it out. But I thought it would be helpful for us to talk through this idea because there are a lot of questions and there has been some debate in the Southern Baptist world about these issues and thought it would be helpful for us to just bring clarity on, on where we're at concerning these issues and why we believe the things that we do. And so um, if you've hung around TCGS at all, you would know that we are a church who is, um, you can speak to this in a second, Aaron, but is a church that would hold what we would call the doctrines of grace uh, or we'd believe in reform theology or would be Calvinists. And that's the, our statement of faith reflects as much. Um, so, um, you know, we're not shy about that. We're not shy about speaking highly of God's sovereignty and God's sovereignty over our salvation. I mean, it's a beautiful truth and an amazing truth and, and biblical truth. Um, uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm starting to get ahead of myself here. Um, that's ultimately why we, why I decided not to delve into that no that's good that's helpful so you've used we've used some terms we've we've you know ephesians 1 uses chose with that comes you know election uh is kind of the the word we would also use in conjunction with that we've mentioned predestination in ephesians 1 you've talked about god's sovereignty you've used the term reformed you've used the term uh calvinism so uh, all of those are a lot of that's a lot of terms we could define those terms. Each of those definitions would have 5, 10, 15, 20 words each. Then we'd probably need to go define some of those terms to really get, you know, exact Super. and precise on what we are meaning. So kind of just in, in thinking about this, we, we want to dive into some of these terms and kind of flesh them out and talk a little bit, you know, about what we mean. But I do think as we as we talk about labels, as we put labels on things, Reformed or Calvinism or yeah. whatever, we, we want to do the best we can to define our terms, um, you know, as as graciously and kindly and clearly as as we can. Um, but a lot of times for me, I'm, I'm hesitant of of labels because I'm never quite sure when people claim to be something. I'm never 100 percent sure what they mean. Like, yeah. What do you mean by that? Um, I mean, reform for me would be a big a big question mark. You know, what is it? What does somebody mean? when they mean reform because they Actually, could mean I'm sorry yeah no you go ahead well of of the titles I'm probably least crazy about that particular title just mm. because with reform theology it's not just talking about God's sovereignty over salvation it's not just talking about election and predestination it also is talking about the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant That's and right. how there's certain um, and, and how reform theology sees these multiple administrations of the same covenant and we would articulate it differently as Baptist. And then it, that kind of bleeds into the topic of baptism, credo baptism and pedo baptism. And if you have too much continuity anyway, so it, that, it, that gets into a whole host of other issues and issues that we would as Baptists disagree with. And so reformed is probably not the most helpful title to use when discussing these um, you know, these particular issues. Yeah. Sorry that, to interrupt you. No, that's good. And, and just for our kind of listeners sake, we're, we're thinking they're reformed, you know, the most clear, at least I can put it is kind of our PCA Presbyterian yeah. brothers who 
um, brothers and sisters who would hold up a, you know, a similar kind of God's sovereignty, election, predestination, you know, some of that, some of that language, but then because of the, the covenants and because of kind of how we view baptism and how we view kind of entrance into the church and some of those different things, um, reformed a lot of times carries more kind of Presbyterian feel yeah. than maybe uh, yeah. we would be comfortable with. Totally. So even just in thinking about um, some of the history of kind of where these terms have, have come from. So John Calvin was an important reformer in the 1500s. Uh, Luther and Calvin are seen really as the great architects of the Protestant Reformation. Calvin was a theologian and pastor in Geneva. He died in 1564, so kind of early 1500s to mid 1500s. He has some really helpful commentaries. He has the Institutes on the Christian re- uh, Religion, all still very influential um, today. So obviously Reformed, kind of coming from Reformation, Calvinism, kind of coming from Calvin. Uh, churches which have held to Calvin's teachings are, are a lot of times called uh, Reformed, somewhat as opposed to like Lutheranism or Lu- kind of Luther being the other one, and then even, you know, depending on exactly how you define Anglican or Episcopalian branches of the Reformation and kind of Protestantism. Um, and all, all of this as distinct from Catholicism. Good, distinct Catholicism. from Catholicism. Yeah. Exactly. That That's really helpful. And then, you know, we, we are Baptists, but many Baptist brothers and sisters are not Reformed. Um, and even in, you know, our elder meeting that we discussed after your sermon, um, there's many times, you know, it, different, some of these words we've used are more kosher, at certain times and less kosher at certain times in the last 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years. Um, so kind of the controversy came over what is called Arminianism, named for a guy who lived just a generation after Calvin, Jacob Arminius, and that's kind of opposed to Calvinism, which was influenced by Calvin, but then really Theodore Beza was his kind of um, disciple who lived in the same generation as Arminius. Um and so Beza kind of pushed Calvinism kind of down the road. And so Arminians drew up drew up a creed in five articles. I think it's called the Remonstrance. We were trying to figure out how to how to say that the other day. I think day. that's how our church history prof said it. Okay, like, perfect. Remonstrance. Yeah. Remonstrance. Excellent. And so then in response, the can the, there was the canons of Dort were written in response, and in that there were five doctrines, and each one contains kind of articles, you know, positive affirmations about the doctrine and then negative, you know, kind of rejections because we believe in this, we re-reject this. So those five doctrines are are kind of helpful and we've kind of come to summarize them in a certain way. So Trevor, how would you define Calvinism? How would you talk about those doctrines that kind of came out of the canons of Dort? Yeah, I, I think, and I think this is probably true of our elders, we like the phrase doctrines of grace the most and I can get into why for that in a second, but the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism. Also, this podcast is going to be way more than 20 or 25 minutes. That's great. Fair. We're hitting 15 right now. Great. We're, I'm, we're just look, getting I'm looking up. forward to it. We're warming up. Um, so TULIP, uh, it's, it's represented in the acronym TULIP. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement, which is not the most helpful way to say that. And we'll talk about that in a second. I, irresistible grace. And P, perseverance of the saints. And each of those fits together logically. It's built to, it's built to, um, as a pithy summary of the kind of logical development of the, the the understanding that salvation works itself out. Kind of the 
the, the reality of man's fallenness necessitates that God sets his affection, necessitates that God, in setting his affection, um, sends Christ to bear those sins. And then it, that necessitates God himself opening our hearts to see and receive Christ, which then um, results in God actively sustaining and persevering his people until the very end. So, tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. That's great. Um, I was reading a, a John Piper article that Josh uh, Stiles shared with us, and he, um, I don't, do we have the ability in our podcast to like share links yeah, or whatever? Yeah, I don't do know that. how any of that works. We can we can share this article. Um, and 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 Piper was kind of mentioning you kind of went through the tulip, and that kind of can make logical sense. He has kind of a different. He would still have the the tulip. T U L I P, but the letters rearranged to to make even a little bit more, kind of that way you just described almost as more of like a biblical theology route. He reorganized it. Um, we don't have to go into it now, but to kind of be more from from our you know circumstance, how we kind of experience it. So it's just a helpful way to to think about some of these um, some of these ideas around Calvinism. Tulip, um, from my research, kind of first popped up in the early 1900s. Obviously. Um, you know, reformers aren't writing in English. So this, you know, right. the doctrines of the canons of Dort are not, they, they didn't do tulip. Um, this is popping up uh, later on down the road. Um, it was interesting in thinking about Calvinism. I think in that same article that I was reading by, by Piper um, or maybe a different article I was reading, he, he quotes a guy named Greg Forster, which I thought was interesting as we kind of dive into more of what Calvinism is. He says, it sometimes feels like Calvinists first invoke the five points, the, the tulip, then apologize for invoking the five points, then explain how the five points don't really mean what they seem to mean and aren't really saying what they seem to be saying. This can't possibly be the best way to introduce people to what we believe. So I thought that yeah. was kind of relevant in we want to present it positively. We're going to try to nuance it where we need to nuance it. Yeah. Um, but discuss through it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why I love the doctrines of grace, because calling them the doctrines of grace, because what it emphasizes is that it is God's initiative and God's grace and God's kindness and God's power and God's mercy applied to our situation. Um, and in the same way that God created all things from nothing, God recreates, in a, in a sense, from nothing, out of, out of pure grace, out of pure love, God is motivated to act. So if you... Uh, so you were about to say something? No, you're good. So if you take take a look at Tulip, the total depravity, the idea there isn't that we're all, you know, Adolf Hitler or, or whatever. The idea is that every part of us has been affected by the fall. And every part of us, the, the way there's, there's a great book that kind of frames this issue through the lens of joy by Tony Reinke. Um, the, the way he describes total depravity is it's a, it's a blindness and it's a deadness to joy. It's a blindness and deadness to God himself. Mm. And because we have that blindness and deadness, uh, where the, the deadness language coming from Ephesians chapter 2, it requires God motivated by grace and in his power to make us alive. Like we, can't, we don't come alive and then go to God. We are dead. And God has to come to us and breathe life in us. Uh, it, it is worth, I mean, kind of considering the, the parallels between what God does in Adam and then what he does for each of us when he makes us new. You know, Adam doesn't exist. He breathes life into dirt and then Adam is alive. And it's the mm. same idea. Like we are, we are in a kind of deadness, a kind of non-existence until God graciously acts and breathes life into us. And that's what 
the doctrines of grace want to say is they want to say it's all God. Mm. It is, I'm saved because of God, period. It's all God. It's all his grace. It's all his kindness and all his mercy. And so for me, it's like, it, it is nothing to be ashamed of or scared of. I mean, it is beautifully, powerfully true. And it just, and I love how much it emphasizes God's grace. Yeah. Um, and I think, I'm pretty sure Spurgeon liked to refer to them as the doctrines of grace as well, which, uh, um, I, he wrote a really beautiful book I read in college called All Is Grace, and, and grace was a, a major part of his ministry. That's really good, and that that's helpful f- in, in just thinking about, you know, even my own salvation. You know, I wanted nothing to do with what I am now pursuing and, and yeah. running after. And it's, I mean, the Lord taking the veil away from my eyes, taking a dead heart and making it alive. I mean, the scriptures are just filled with what God does, God's sovereignty, God's really initiative over over all of it and we we want to articulate that we believe in a big god a god who's infinite eternal outside of time and space not you know influenced by the whims of a Mm. five foot ten 170 pound dude or a you know whatever um he's he is sovereign over it all so i want to go in a, a little bit to thinking about these doctrines of grace and maybe kind of thinking about the tulip maybe a little bit more explicitly just hitting each one kind of kind of quickly, and then I want to conclude with why are we, again, kind of happy about all of this? You helpfully kind of pointed out yeah. the doctrines of grace. We're going to conclude kind of why are we okay with this? Why are we happy uh, with this? So total depravity, um, I know you've kind of summarized these a little bit uh, just a couple minutes minutes ago, but tell me a little bit more about total depravity. Yeah, so total depravity is is the, the idea that our every element of our being has been affected by the fall. It's been blunted by the fall. It's not that it's it's not that we're reduced to something beneath the imago day that we're subhuman kind of in our in our dignity and our value, but it is to say that we have been cut off from God, you know, willingly so, and that we are um, unresponsive and dead in our sin and trespasses and sin. And again, total depravity, totally depraved in the sense that every every piece that makes up our humanity is is bent and broken. Um, so not total depraved, as in utterly depraved, or like you are the bottom of the barrel, but total depraved in the sense that every part of us is broken. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's really helpful. And and both kind of sides of the argument back in the Reformation had some some level of kind of total total depravity. I think we all see, we we can all argue that that we are sinful and kind of depraved to our very core. Um, that's great. As we think about unconditional election. Um, the you, yep. what do you, what do you think about there? Yeah. So this is the idea that apart from any kind of merit, God sets his affection on those who would believe that God purposes. Um, you can make the case that what he, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, um, three through five, that he's, uh, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he predestined us for adoption to himself, that there are some, those, those who would believe um, are those that God, without any merit within those individuals, God set his purposes to adopt, set his purposes to save. Um, it's often, uh, you mentioned the Genesis 12 reference in our statement of faith. Um, stories like Noah and Abraham are often uh, helpful pictures of this kind of idea that God goes to these individuals because he set his affection on those individuals, mm. um, or Mary, you know, God, Mary found favor in God's eyes. 
um, God chose Abraham from the Ur of the Chaldeans, right? So there's this kind of God, God setting his affection on particular people. Now, this is where it does get into kind of dicey territory, because if, if, if God set, if, if he has unconditionally elected or set his affection on some people, that means he has not set his affection on other people. And that's one of the primary sort of areas where people contest the, the this particular teaching of Scripture, that, you know, if God chooses to save some, then that must necessarily mean he doesn't choose to save others. Mm. Yeah, that's good. And it's interesting in thinking about, you know, that's where predestination language comes in. And there's arguments for believing in kind of double predestination. God is sovereign over it all um, in putting, you know, either to hell or to, um, you know, heaven to kind of eternity with him. Also, the view in single predestination, essentially that everyone is running away from God. We are totally yeah. depraved. And so God and his His kindness is, is calling some back to himself. The question is not you know, why hasn't God saved me or why hasn't God saved whoever? It's why does God save anyone? Yeah. Um, if he saved one person in this world, that would be mind blowing. That would be just absolutely, it would, it's phenomenal. It's amazing yeah. at its very core. And if he saved no one, it would be amazing and phenomenal and glorious because he is perfect and, and glorious holy. in his judgment. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and, um, and oftentimes, one of the one of the moves people like to make is that God doesn't set His affection on those who would believe. It's rather that God peers into the future, to kind of appeal to something like foreknowledge. That God, you know, God is not confined by ideas like past, present, and future. God exists in all times, and therefore, you know, He 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 can see into the future. He sees those who He would those who would believe, and then He then He sort of sets His affection on the basis of those who would ultimately one day believe. And that's kind of the the answer or, or the a way to kind of deal with the discomfort of God's sovereignty over those who believe and don't believe. But but ultimately it just kind of kicks the can further down the road because it doesn't it, it doesn't solve the issue so much as it pushes it back a step further. Like, um, if that's the case, then why did God even create a universe or even sort of create a scenario where it would be possible for some people not to believe Mm. you know what i mean so you're still not actually getting away from those tricky questions of god's sovereignty as it relates to human agency it's just kind of kicking that back a little bit further Mm. does that make sense yeah that's really helpful that that is helpful you've got you're gonna have to deal with some of these things that make us a little squirmy or you know it feels a little bit um difficult to get our minds around. Yeah. I was thinking about a couple of a couple of verses you were mentioning in Genesis. I was also thinking about Joseph. Uh Genesis uh fifty verse twenty. Joseph had, you know, essentially been cast out to to die and to go into slavery and, you know, everything bad um by his brothers. But then he says, As for as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to hmm. bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so we just think about God's sovereignty kind of ruling in in that um obviously that's maybe kind of slightly different than thinking about specifically salvation but that's kind of even the way we see it throughout the throughout the old testament or a, a passage we love deuteronomy 29 29 mm. the secret things belong to the lord our god but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law so there's secret things that belong to the lord um god hardened pharaoh's heart you know 10 times why did why did he do that you know exactly um but there's certain things that belong to the lord and there's certain things that are more feasible for us to get our minds around yeah 
Well, in just that dynamic and that kind of understanding God, that God's sovereignty and its relationship with human agency, our statement of faith makes it clear that uh, in the in the bit on election and the bit, uh, I think it's item six, just above that on providence, that in affirming God's complete and utter and meticulous sovereignty over all things, we're not therefore saying that God is the author of evil or that the evil things that we perpetrate in our own hearts or, or the, the things that Adolf Hitler, God, God is not guilty of those things because humans and their own responsibility and agency chose to do those things. Um, a great place to see this scripturally is, I've, I've been studying Acts this morning, preparing for a teaching series, but in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter even seems in his mind to have kind of like the Genesis uh, scripture you just read mm-hmm. in, in Peter's mind, he even has an understanding of like God's sovereignty and his meticulous, definite sovereignty over all things, and that not conflicting with human agency, uh, and in particular, evil human activity. That's really helpful. Since you mentioned it, um, just read number six of our statement of faith in Providence. From eternity, God decrees or permits all things that come to pass, and he perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. Even so, his sovereign governance does not in any way make him to be the author and approver of sin, nor does his sovereignty destroy the free agency and responsibility of human beings. So uh, Aristotle, he's a Greek philosopher writing way back when, um, hundreds of years before Jesus, he thought a lot about some of these big issues and big questions. And actually, Christian thinkers have kind of taken up some of the categories that he introduces in, in regards to causation to help us think through this. So Aristotle introduced four different categories of cause. There's we won't read all four, but the first two are the final cause and the efficient cause, or you might say the primary and the secondary cause. So the the final cause is that for the sake of which something happens. It's like that's the end game. That's the um, uh, the the ultimate reason behind why something takes place. The secondary or the efficient cause is the agent whose action produces the effect. So um, thinking thinking from an example on like a story like. Uh, we, we use this analogy a good bit. Um, how did Cedric Diggory die in book four of Harry Potter? It's because Voldemort killed him. That's the that's the secondary cause. But the primary cause is that J.K. Rowling was telling a story where Voldemort kills Cedric Diggory and ultimately Harry Potter triumphs over Voldemort, yada, yada. Mm. Right? So there's this kind of different, there's multiple layers of causation that are at play. And so when we talk about an event happening in human history, it's it's right to say that God is sovereign behind it, but also to recognize the human agency that's within it. In the same way that an author is behind the events of a story, we recognize that it's just it's just different, right? Like the author and the fictional characters exist on these like fundamentally different planes of reality, you could say. And it's the chasm is like so great, we we understand that we're we're kind of it doesn't make sense to even try and compare the level of causation there. And in the same way, like God is so much infinitely bigger and beyond and behind, so ontologically other, that it just doesn't make sense for us to kind of flatten causation in the way that we have a tendency to do. Like God is not just a character in the story. God is the author mm. in every way. Wow. Um, and so we do have to recognize like there is some mystery as to how those two things actually intersect, like Deuteronomy 29, 29 style. Um, 
but it's right for us to both say that God's sovereignly behind all things, but also humans are responsible for their rejection of God. Mm. Um, that's, so. that's really helpful. That's really helpful. Let's keep going on. We did total depravity. We did unconditional election. Now we're thinking about limited atonement or the other way of kind of thinking about it is definite atonement. Yeah. What do you think there, Trevor? Why do you like definite? Yeah. So, um, limited atonement, I guess two dip is not, a, is not a thing. So they went with two lip. Um, uh, it's the teaching that God sets his affection on a, on a group who will be saved and that Jesus goes and dies for those people. Um, and so the idea there is that Jesus's blood was shed not for every single person in the same way that Jesus's blood was shed to save those that God had elected. So when, when it says that Christ went to the cross and bore the sins of, of, of the, the many bore the sins of his people. Uh, one thing that, uh, Calvinistic reform folks like to say, and I think this is really, really beautiful is that Jesus took names to the cross. Jesus went and he took the names of his people in the same way that a priest who bears the 12, um, goodness, I can't remember the exact terminology, but has the chest plate, the breastplate that has the 12 tribes of Israel as he steps into the Holy of Holies, as he represents his people in the same way Christ represented his people on the cross as a great high priest. And so his sin is shed exclusively for his people. Mm. Uh, his blood rather is shed exclusively for the sin of his people. Yeah, that's really, that's really helpful. It's interesting. Th- this is one of the ones, and I mean, to try to get behind the the curtain a little bit, this is one of the ones that I kind of wrestle through and, and don't know hundred percent kind of where I, what label I'd be happy to kind of yeah. uh, put on myself because when I, when I read, I, I was reading that kind of John Piper article and he was talking about limited atonement and then it, you know, sometimes feels like when we define limited atonement, there's almost, there's another view called a multiple intentions or multiple attestation view uh, of the atonement um, that I learned about through Dr. Hammett at at Southeastern. And essentially it, it sometimes feels like those two are kind of similar, the, the limited and definite atonement, the way it will be articulated, the way it's kind of nuanced with the multiple attestation view. And essentially the, the main, the main idea is that we can we can go and say to any person, God loves you, Christ died for you, repent and believe. Because in a in a sense, the provision is there. Christ has died. Yeah. Um, and we can proclaim that and we can preach it from the housetops and beg to people to repent and believe. But then its application is is limited. It ha- it it must be limited. Christ didn't die for sins and then unbeliever Joe down the street is also going to die for those sins and bear the, bear the wrath. There's not a, there's not a double punishment or a double kind of wrath of, of God poured out. Um, but there does, you know, even something like first Timothy, you know, four ten for to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe there is, there is language, you know, for God so loved the world that he sent his own, one and only son, 1 John 2, 2, um, that Christ is the propitiation, you know, for the sins of, of, of the world, essentially. Um, that there is kind of general language, um, but then there's the, the limited nature in the, hmm. in the atonement. Yeah. Um, what do you think there? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the best, the best explanation for the passages, like he died for the sins of the world or John three sixteen for God so loved the world isn't that um, it, it, what seems to be 
emphasize there is that it's for all nations. It's not just for Jewish people, that he's the Messiah who dies for the sins of all people, not just Israelites, not just ethnically Jewish people, but uh, he's, he's gathering a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the reason I like definite atonement is because it emphasizes like Jesus didn't come, J- Jesus didn't die to make us savable. He died to save his people, mm. period. Mm. One of the problems, and, and this is what um, Reformed people point out, one of the problems with unlimited atonement is that we're, we're, you're saying that Jesus died for every person's sin, except for the sin of unbelief. And so they have to they have to believe, have to overcome the sin of unbelief in order to actually mm. receive the benefits of salvation. So did Jesus die for every sin, including our unbelief? Or did Jesus die for, uh, that's, you know, that's in regards to his people. Or did Jesus die for all people except for the sin of unbelief? Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So Jesus, Jesus didn't die. His atonement isn't 99% powerful. And you gotta, you gotta cross that bridge, that 1% with your belief. No, Jesus's atonement is 100% powerful. That's right. And it's a, it's a ravishing, powerful love and grace that undoes our deadness and our blindness. Mm-hmm. Um, This is obviously one of the more contested pieces, mm-hmm. and there's a there. I believe John Stott is is what you is an example of this, but it's an amaraldism. Mm-hmm. It's a it's essentially a four point Calvinism. Mm-hmm. It it sees that the L or the limited or the definite atonement is not as explicitly um, articulated in Scripture. Uh, it's rather a deduction um, from other passages, and so. Um, you will find folks will say something like, I'm a four-point Calvinist too. Mm-hmm. I can't quite get on board with limited atonement because of the because of the the, the seemingly really strong way the New Testament paints um, the kind of wide, um, the, the far and wide reaching um, work Jesus did on the cross. Yeah. And I'm sympathetic to that. I think one of my professors in, in um, at North Greenville would say he was a, a four-pointer. And just felt like it wasn't there wasn't enough explicit biblical support for the idea, um, and so he would he, he wouldn't quite hold to limited atonement. It was just okay with kind of the whole um, in his theology there. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful to think through. I'm, you know, even thinking about for our, for our listeners, you know, somebody like John Piper or whoever would who would kind of hold up all all five points of of the tulip. He Piper would say that God sent Christ to save all in some sense there yeah. is some sense of that and god sent christ to save those who believe in a more particular sense there's kind of god's intention um kind of the same with the causation there's kind of multiple causes there can also be multiple intentions yeah. um the atonement is sufficient you know f- for any person no person is um you know kind of outside of the realm based on some you know something in them and yet it's only efficient or, you know, applied for yeah. anybody in, in particular. So, like, it, the idea is, like, Jesus' blood is potent enough if every soul in the history of the world in all times and places believed. Jesus' blood is strong enough That's to right. cover billions and billions and billions and billions of souls. Um, but not all people will believe. Therefore, um it's only efficient for some. It's that's only right. efficient for those who believe. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of the idea. Or, and some have also argued that... Uh, Jesus bought common grace as well. So common grace would be things like pleasant weather or um, long John Silvers. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but... Um, uh, that sounds terrible. Well, you get what I'm saying. Bacon, common grace. Mm. Um, 
and and I don't want to trivialize. I, I'm not intending to be silly, but but like Jesus bought those graces as well. So his he died for all people in the sense that his he he bought common grace for all folks, yeah. and then a salvific grace for the elect. Mm. Now, one I figure we could we'll hit some objections at the end, but one objection is you know on this point, how could a Calvinist ever genuinely say? repent and believe Jesus died for your sins. Um, and you've kind of alluded to some ways that Calvinists do it because they think about the multiple effectiveness view. But also, like when Calvinists or people who adhere to the doctrines of grace talk about the elect and they talk about these issues, we very much kind of understand that we're talking about this in like a whiteboard session, that this is above the clouds and this is um, within the realm of God's activity. He's revealed it to us in the scripture, but it's within the realm of God's activity. So I don't know who the elect are. And every person that I evangelize could be someone that is the elect. And if God ordains their salvation, he also ordains the means by which they repent and believe. And my my gospel call and evangelism could be the means that God has ordained for them to you know, achieve the end of, of being saved. So that that's one thing is like, just because we say, you know, we believe that God elects the people, I'm not also saying, and I know who they are, because we don't, no one does. Mm. That's that's the secret stuff that belongs to the Lord. And even somewhere, you know, why in the world would we ever spend a second praying, like, God's sovereign over it all? Yeah. What does it matter? Um, yeah. Well, and I think... We're commanded to. We, there. That's right. That might, I remember you vividly telling me, like, eight or nine years ago when I was kind of asking some of those questions, that your your two-second prayer, your 20-minute prayer may, may be the means by which God, you know, starts the the sa- saving process or saves or, mm. you know, whatever. It, it, it could be the means by which mm. he he was ordaining to, to use. Yeah. Um, and we have no way of knowing that. And we, but we know we're commanded to pray. That's right. The secondary, yeah. Maybe, maybe God ordained for that 10-second prayer to be the secondary cause that begins the process of this person being saved mm. or being healed of a disease or, you know, whatever, whatever we might be praying for. That's yeah, right. That's, that's right. right. It's good. That's really helpful. Irresistible grace is the I. What do you, what do you think about that one? Yeah. The, it's a, uh, I kind of mentioned this a moment ago, but it's this, it's the, it's the eye opening. It's God graciously turning our hearts, um, taking a heart of flesh, a uh, heart of stone rather, and making it a heart of flesh. We're dead, and it's God breathing life into us. It's God's grace overwhelming us and opening us up to new life, to see Christ, to repent and believe. It's the new birth. Um, the In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he's asking Jesus these questions about the kingdom. And Jesus you know, was like, you're a teacher of Israel, yet you don't believe these things. Jesus says, like, in order for someone to be uh, enter the kingdom of heaven, they must be born again. And uh, Nicodemus is like, you can go up in your mom and, and be born again. And then Jesus explains that he's talking about a, a spiritual rebirth. Irresistible grace is the spiritual rebirth. It is the it is, it is God um, penetrating your heart in his kindness and mercy to see Christ in his glory and to respond with faith and repentance and belief. Um, when we talk about the new birth, oftentimes we, we say, if you believe, then you'll be born again. But actually... What the scriptures teach, when Jesus says there is like the new birth precedes belief. Mm. You've got to be regenerated, rege- like regenesized, like recreated mm. in order to to believe, and that's a, an act of God's sovereign will and sovereign grace. Um, 
you about to say something? No, no, I that that's really helpful and and encouraging again. Just seeing God's sovereignty and bringing new life. Yeah, the, the old is gone, the new has come. That didn't just we we didn't just all of a sudden make ourselves new. Yeah, that's right. Well, and it's the same. I mean, did you? How much work did you put into being born? You know. Yeah. Um, it's like Lisa Hoffman, man, she crushed it, mm. and I was there for it. You know. Yep. Um, that's kind of and that that's seems to be what Jesus is saying. Like there's a, there's a, our new birth is similar to that. There's mm. a, there's a kind of gracious bringing you into the world, so to speak. And even thinking about that, like recently since watching my wife give birth, yeah. I now think birthdays should not be for children. They should be for the mother. <laughs> and it's kind of like, maybe kind of the same, like our spiritual birthdays or our, you know, anything, it's nothing to do with us. It's totally humbling. Yeah. We did nothing. It's all about the one who did the, did the birthing, did the new birthing. Well, and that's why, I mean, in Ephesians one, um, you know, again, it's, it's something like four or five times. He says to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, like the whole, the name of the game and our salvation is to the praise of God's glorious grace. Like that's the whole ordeal Mm -hmm. is to celebrate his kindness and seeing us in our bent in broken, totally depraved state. And, um, loving us and into his love, Mm. you know, um, it's all about, it's all about God and his grace. And again, that's why I love these. I think these are beautiful doctrines and yeah, yeah, it's like some of it's hard to swallow because some of it challenges our autonomy. It challenges our conviction that we're the center of the universe, but it's like, no man, God is good and he's big and he's gracious and he takes up our cause. Mm. That's, that's all we're trying to say. Mm. Yeah. That's so good. Um, All right. Last one. P perseverance of the saints. So, we, we do have a statement in our statement of faith on yeah. the perseverance of saints. I won't, I won't read it uh, for now, but what, what do you think there? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, he will hold me fast. That song that we sing. Um, every line of that song is uh, a, a Calvinist singing his guts out about the perseverance of the saints that my, that Jesus's commitment to us is far greater than my commitment to him. Um, it's, it's the, it's the work of God. It's like, you didn't do anything to save yourself. You're not going to do anything to lose your salvation. Um, God, God is, is faithful and he will preserve us to the end. Mm. Um, deeply, deeply comforting. Mm. One, sometimes kind of popularly, popularly stated as once saved, always saved, which is probably not the most helpful thing. Um, and it's interesting that Baptists really love the T and really love the P, but some, you know, Baptists have a really hard time with the U, L and I, uh, but it's this idea that like, you know, Jesus says in John chapter six, you know, those who are mine they they're not never going to be not mine yep you know um those who come to me i will in no wise ain't never gonna never gonna cast out yep. never gonna give you up never gonna just kidding um you know that reference no i don't you know, the rick roll video never uh, gonna give you up never gonna let i don't you know it. All right. i'm out of loop on most everything that's okay so the staff in, informs me on everything i should know i was thinking there i was studying this morning um i've got the beginning of acts two with the spirit coming and tongues and you know, languages spoken and uh, similarly, Jesus and John kind of 14 to 16 promising the spirit. And it's like, once the spirit comes, it's, it's there. Like he, he is there dwelling in you, working in you. Um, and the spirit, the spirit will not, will not leave you or forsake you or Romans eight. Um, nothing can separate us from the love Mm. of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. I want Um, that like tattooed on my chest. It's the mm, best. mm. So good. It's great. All right, so you you mentioned um, any objections that kind of pop up to to some of these things, and then we'll we'll close ourselves out. 
Yeah, I mean, some of the popular ones are like, doesn't this negate evangelism? It doesn't doesn't this negate prayer? Doesn't this negate action? And again, just you know, I'd say, no, because just because we say these things, kind of big picture above the clouds on a whiteboard, kind of reflecting on what the scriptures say, it's not to say that we have access to all of that information. I don't, I do not have the Google spreadsheet book of life that I can that I use to sort out who's in and who's out. In fact, you know, Peter says, make your calling and election sure, like persevere in the faith, um, to ensure that you are indeed elect. Like in in some ways, um, the jury is very much still out on each of us. Mm -hmm. Like we don't know if we're in or if we're out until the story is written until it's all said and done. You know what I mean? Um, and that, you know, motivates us. That's part of what God uses to preserve us is that, you know, the possibility that at any moment I could, I could leave the faith. Um, and so I don't think that those two things are, are necessarily at odds. Mm. So that, that's, that, that's probably the biggest objection. And yet we also have assurance, you know, of our salvation through the work of the spirit and we can, you know, persevere and, per, and that, and that is a major reason we pursue holiness and seek godliness and need accountability. And, you know, one thing we articulated, you know, a couple of months ago is just, needing each other to continue believing in Jesus. Yeah, um, that's good. We need each other to, to do the, that. You're talking about Hebrews, the Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Yeah. 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 And I think Hebrews 3 as well. Um, I think 14, 15, if I'm remembering. But yes. Yeah. Well, Hebrews is a great example of a book that kind of has both of these poles in tension. You've got a really strong statement about God holding us fast, but, but then you also have this very strong statement about the need for us to, to persevere and to adhere and to press forward. And in his, in the author of Hebrews mind, those two things aren't at odds with one another. They, they, they feed and nourish and serve and help one another. Mm. Um, it, my, my reference was Hebrews three, I think 12 and 13. Um, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So kind of question marks, like, we, can we can we fall away? Like, we were with God, and now we're not with God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called a day, that none of you may be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. Essentially, we need each other to exhort one another to continue to believe in the Lord Jesus. That's part of what our gathering does each and every week, is not just you or me or whoever's preaching or leading the liturgy. It's Oh man, there's all my other brothers and sisters here singing, worshiping, praying, exhorting me to believe. Yeah, and it's also worth pointing out that these these doctrines were also uh, we obviously believe that they're biblical doctrines, but you know, in, in the way that they the way that the this kind of system and their adherence developed over time. You know, we talk about Calvin and, and Calvin's followers and and believers who sort of put this together and packaged this. Um, it's worth pointing out that they were forged in suffering, that believers found tremendous comfort from this truth that God is sovereign over everything and that there's nothing that separates us, not sword, not famine, not persecution by the state, you know, not opposition that's going to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And Calvinism and the teachings of the doctrines of grace are like, they put iron in your blood and, you know, steel in your backbone. You know, they, they, they help us. Um, again, you know, studying and preparing for Acts, one of the things that's all over the book of Acts is like God's sovereignty over all of it. And it's amazing the stuff that the early church experiences. And Christians all over the world are, are suffering, you know, these these same things now. But it's like for all of the uncertainty and all of the difficulty and all of the hardship, 
um, that we're going to face, like we can be confident that God is really big and God is really strong and God is really actually in control, in control of all of it. Mm. Um, and so the doctrines of grace, they're not intended to be weapons. We don't, we don't wield them over people. They're not for the most theologically sophisticated. They're not for the, the theological sommeliers. They're not, you know, they're not for, I don't know, the, the Navy SEALs of the church world. They're for struggling, hurting, aching, wounded believers who need a big, strong, kind Jesus. And, um, and I think that's what they, that's what they celebrate and highlight. Yeah, that's really good. I was thinking as you were articulating that, that even Calvin, a lot of his view develops, if I'm not mistaken, remembering from my church history classes, he essentially got to preach every single day to Geneva, to, yeah. to the church. And his big question was, why are people not believing? Like why they mm. literally have to listen to me. Every single day, they're in they're in these pews and they don't believe. Mm. They don't follow Jesus. Why is that the case? Um, and it's, you know, God God is sovereign over it. Um, he felt he had done. You know, I'm doing literally everything I can to convince them. I don't know what else it could be than you know a dead heart that has not been made yeah. um, alive. And then even thinking about what you what you said, why I love the song Jesus strong and kind. Like Jesus is strong and yet he is very kind yeah. and very gracious and loving. Dude, I love that. And I love thinking that we th- he's both. If Jesus were just strong, that would be horrifying. Mm. If Jesus were just kind, he would be impotent. But Jesus is strong and he's kind. And that, that to me is the doctrines of grace. That's great. Jesus is strong and kind. That's so good. I want to conclude us asking just, you know, why are we, why are we happy Calvinists? Um, one of the quotes I was uh, found was, J.R. Packer saying, we are all Calvinist on our knees because there we call Jesus Savior, not just possibility maker. Mm. You know, we we beg for the Lord to to save and mm. to change people and to change our own hearts, um, even after we've been saved and continue to mold us. And yet that is that is God being sovereign. The Spirit, and that's a big aspect of the Holy Spirit, um, where we need to be, you know, the spirit is the one working. The spirit's the one who opens our eyes. The spirit's the one who changes us. The spirit's who, the one who makes dead hearts and brings it to life. Mm. What else do you think? Why are we happy Calvinist? Mm. Um, golly, it's hard to add to what you just said. It's because of the comfort that comes with knowing that Jesus, Jesus loves me and he's committed to me. Um, and he's committed to his church. Um, of all of the uncertain things in the world and all the uncertain things right now, it's like, man, we can go to bed at night with that one, you know? Um, I, I'd say I'm probably also a happy Calvinist because I've been a not happy, I've been a grumpy Calvinist before. And that's just a horrible way to be. Uh, being, being grumpy is no, no good. Nobody likes that. But being a grumpy Calvinist is especially bad because it's, it's like so betrays the heart of the truth of those doctrines. It's like, it, it's, it's so misses the point. Mm. Um, because the point is a happy God whose happiness overwhelms our deadness. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's so, so good. It's a it's a contradiction in terms. Yes, very much so. I was thinking about, you know, it, it is, um, it, it's deeply satisfying. I was reading an article by Mark Dever uh, recently, and um, we can put it in the notes as well. It's just this long article, 10 kind of points of why are there kind of so many Calvinists kind of reformed, uh, people today. And, and one of the things he talks about is Arminianism being almost just a theodicy, a way to, um, just talk about, you know, kind of evil existing in the world, kind of coming from, 
uh, free will, and it's kind of the answer to evil being the being in the world that God created. It just seems to kind of say God is good. You know, it's our everything that's that's bad's our fault, and kind of you know we we just have to make the decision to kind of get back to Him. And he makes a funny statement because this is me before he said a United Methodist may be satisfied with this, and that was funny because that's I I grew mm-hmm. up in the Methodist Church. This teaching, but a deist, Buddhist, atheist has no reasons to be. Someone saying, well, God could have made this world without suffering, but in order to be loved with uh, dignity by free beings, he decided he must allow such sin and suffering as we experience. Saying that will just not satisfy. Mm. Mark Dever says, really? Then hang being loved with dignity. Forget the whole experiment. It costs too much. Furthermore, what kind of God needs to be worshipped? What kind of deity is this? Reformed theology, on the other hand, teaches about a God who is God. Mm. He is sovereign. He rules. Um, he is over all things. God saves to make his name known. He doesn't save for us. Um, he does love us. He is kind. And yet he's out. Um, I go back to your um, Advent series when we were at Chandler Creek, Christmas of 2019 and it's like god loves god Mm. first Mm. god is out for his glory um from genesis genesis 1 to revelation 22 is about god Mm. it is it is about us and we want you know we want to promote that we are assured and we have hope and jesus is kind and yet primarily it is about god yeah that's good Sweet. Any other thoughts from you? Dude, it's hard to land in a better place than that. I love it. Well, thank you guys for listening to us. Have no idea how long we've just gone, but it was sweet and enjoyable, and I hope it was uh, encouraging to you. Feel free. Um, if you know us or you know, can find our emails on the website, we'd love to talk any more about this or send any resources or try to answer any questions and wrestle through this together. We'll talk to you soon.